This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. New Zealand farmers and growers are well aware of the increasing expectations and requirements in respect of the sustainability performance of their businesses. But what about farmers and growers in other parts of the world? What is being asked of them and how are they responding? To answer these questions, Growing Our Future is going to run a series examining what is actually happening on the ground in some of the world's key food producing regions. I'm going to talk to my rubber bank colleagues in these regions to get a better understanding of how they are approaching sustainability from a government, industry and farmer perspective to give New Zealand farmers and growers some perspective on how New Zealand's approach compares and ultimately what does this mean from a competitive advantage perspective. To kick things off, we're going to discuss what our friends across the ditch are doing and to inform me just how sustainable agriculture is in the lucky country, I'm joined by Head of Client Sustainability for Australia, Crawford Taylor. Crawford, welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Thanks, Blake. It's great to be with you. No, great to have you. And we ask of all our guests, before we kick into things, just to tell us a little bit about themselves, their career, and, and what your current role is with Rubberbank as Head of Client Sustainability for Australia. Thanks, Blake. So, look, my career with the bank has um, spanned well over 30 odd years. Um, I'm a graduate of the Moresk Institute of Agriculture out of Western Australia, did some study overseas, and have been a long term banker with Rabo, principally in country banking or the rural banking business, with uh, lending roles in Victoria, Western Australia, and in New Zealand way back in the late 90s, early 2000s and a few leadership roles within country banking. I suppose the my segue into sustainability has been an interesting one. More recently, I flipped into financial restructuring to help with the challenges from the East Coast drought from 2017 through to 2019. That was interesting. We saw how many businesses were coping with the drought and the strategies that they had in place, and that was a great segue into my current role as Head of Client Sustainability for the country banking business here in Oz. I've been in this role now for two odd years. It's been a very interesting role, challenging role. Principally, our focus is how we can support our clients in this sort of um, growing world of sustainability, how we can support them in the challenges that they have, and and they are many, and also place them in a good position to cope with those challenges. So principally, those areas are pretty multifaceted. We're spending a lot of time in greenhouse gas emissions measurement, but also other areas of sustainability, particularly now around a growing theme in nature. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you have the, a very similar role to what I have in, in New Zealand, which is why, you know, really interesting to discuss with you probably the similarities that we, we face in those roles and, and some of the differences, perhaps. And to kick things off, do you want to give us an, an overview of what are the key sustainability issues facing Australia farmers and, and growers? It's an interesting topic. 
Blake, and I've got to say that because we operate in an environment. Look, we have our rules and regulations as most developed countries do when it comes to ag and ag production, whether at a state-based level here in Australia or through the federal sphere, right? When we look at some of the key sustainability issues, a bit different to New Zealand, particularly as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions inside the farm gate, we're in a voluntary market here. So I suppose that has has driven a, a different set of themes and what's important from an Australian ag perspective. But what we know has been happening and we've got pretty much every major ag sector has its own sustainability framework today. Now, that would be different from say, 10 years ago, even five years ago. And so they have seen changes that are required at their levels to present a picture on behalf of each sector around what it sees and what's important for those sectors. So I think that's very different. And it's now culminating in a national uh, sustainability framework that's been put together through the National Farmers Federation and others, so the Australian Agricultural Sustainability Framework. That shows where we're getting to on the issue of sustainability. This is in addition to uh, what we see from the major agribusiness companies who have all got some sort of sustainability theme or reporting under some sustainability guidelines or metrics within their businesses. What I think is the challenge is we still see a bit of a disconnect as it gets to what's happening inside the farm gate and what they see. And a key sort of example that is on greenhouse gas emissions measurement, we've probably only measured maybe 5% of businesses in Oz at the moment. That is growing. But you still hear and and, and even talking to clients, or, uh, you know, why should I do this? You know, how is it relevant for my business? So that still means that they're maybe not getting signals through their supply chains and their off-takers, right? or haven't been really attuned to maybe, you know, the commitments that the federal government has made around this. So that's interesting. But it is changing, Blake. Absolutely, it is changing. But coming at it from a different lens maybe to the New Zealand market, which I think many Australian farmers find fascinating and and actually want to know a little bit more about. Yes, yeah, so, so the next podcast might be you interviewing me on on, on New Zealand for the Australian Australian audience. <laughs> I think it could be, like It is quite an interesting topic and one I think um, we can learn from, I think, from an Australian context. So it sounds like at, at an industry supply chain level, there's certainly increased engagement and activity, but potentially a, a level of disconnect down to the farmers and growers. So we're has the pressure on the supply chains and industry come from, from your perspective, Groven? So I think it's coming from a couple of areas. So agriculture in Australia, uh, we operate in export-driven markets, so something between 60 to 70% of what we produce goes overseas. So we're seeing connection with what's happening in overseas market and commitments that other countries are making. So I think that's the first thing. You then get to see what the multinationals are doing and the major agribusiness multinationals, so the Nestle's and the Fonterra's of this world. Now, I think that's the most interesting piece because when those companies start making commitments, the supply chain, or as it comes back down inside the farm gate, they just cannot 
be left out of the picture. They have to come into the picture. I think it's just how that process is being done at the moment. It's just not as visible maybe from what we see sort of up down the supply chain, which is quite interesting really. But it's not to say that there's no messages there, Blake. Every time you flick on the TV at night, there's some sort of advertising about the objectors of Coles or Woolworths, our two major food retailers, and their commitment to running sustainable businesses. It's interesting that we're not seeing that fully sort of coming back inside the farm gate for our key businesses. Now, I think that will change and it is changing now, right? You know, what we're looking to do inside our business is how can we do this in a way with our clients that brings them along for the journey is of value to them and where we can have good conversations around what we think is materially important for their business and for clients to set the sustainability component of their farm strategy as part of the overall farm strategy. So, you know, we see ourselves as having a, a pretty important role with our clients on this, using, you know, the international connections, our research and our, our networks to bring this um, knowledge back inside the farm gate. And in terms of some of those pressures or areas that will impact farmers and growers in Australia going forward. We've touched on greenhouse gas, but beyond greenhouse gas, what are some of the sustainability topics that those frameworks and supply chains are increasingly looking at? You know, for example, here in New Zealand, fresh water has certainly been one for a number of years and and nitrogen leaching and, and runoff around phosphorus and, and E. coli. What, what are some of those non-greenhouse gas topics that are relevant in Australia? It's a little bit different here. Look, yes, we have in places nitrogen sort of runoff issues, particularly with the Barrier Reef and our reef wrecks. But actually our key sustainability issue when you get outside of greenhouse gas emissions is really labour availability, not only inside the farm gate but within the supply chain. For example, we have abattoirs that just cannot get enough skilled labour so they're not run at their levels that they would like to and so then cattle are delayed getting slaughtered. So if you went to many of our clients today, they'd probably say labour availability and the quality of that labour has been one of their key issues. And that's key to sustainability. I think then the next piece outside of greenhouse gas emissions is really animal welfare. So we're about to see changes with the long-haul live export of sheep into the Middle East. That is, the current federal government has made the decision to stop the trade, is going through a consultation process about how best it might do it. And that has been made on animal welfare grounds. Interestingly enough, the federal government is saying that the industry has lost its social licence in this space, which is quite a challenging one to think of, making the decision. But it's So that's interesting. And then obviously we send a lot of beef live into the Asian market. So the beef industry is well aware and, and has one of its highest levels of priority of being able to maintain access of live cattle into those markets and is doing everything possible to make sure that's the case. I think they're two key issues. And then you then stretch down around water, being actually water availability has been one of the key issues, particularly when we get into, you know, drying cycles and our water availability in our key irrigation areas on the east coast, such as the Murray-Darling Basin, becomes a real issue. I think they're the key ones. Um, maybe an emerging one would be around deforestation 
as an issue here. It's been highlighted in a, a number of different reports recently and is certainly on the agenda for some here in Oz. Yeah, and look, and I think some of those New Zealand farmers and growers could relate to strongly, particularly the labour issue is absolutely a, a challenge here in New Zealand and, and animal welfare also, but maybe not so much from the, the live exports perspective, although there is a, a segment within the agricultural economy that that, um, that is a high focus of, but proportionally probably is not as a bigger um, impact as in, in, in Australia and very much those sort of deforestation rules and, and what you can do with vegetation on your property is another area that is certainly coming into sharp focus. I'm just keen, and we've already touched on it briefly in terms of the government or regulators approach here, and, and, and don't expect you to sort of articulate for each of those issues what they're doing, but how would you characterise the Australian government's approach to the topic of, of sustainability when you talk at one end of the spectrum around the stick regulatory approach and the other being that the carrot providing some form of incentive for change? What is generally the, the approach within Australia? It's generally the voluntary approach, Blake. If we look at it now, I said before about the sustainability frameworks. These are all voluntary frameworks that have been set up by the the sectors. There's been no uh, requirement from the federal or state governments to do these sorts of things, although they may be set up to in response to and trying to get the industry on the front foot going forward. I think that's the key piece in this. And are these being driven by the industry themselves or more from the government or together? It could be a combination, right? But I've had to say more from the industry themselves. Like, for example, Meat Livestock Australia's uh, Carbon Neutral 2030 program was set out way back in 2017, right? So we have no compliance obligations in the red meat sector to meet any emissions targets, right? We have do have federal government target by 2030, but it's not, it hasn't been put down into various sectors. But I suppose the MLA, if you if you have to read the TLA's way back in 2017 and before then, could see that emissions in the red meat sector were going to be an emerging issue. And given that the majority of emissions that are generated within agriculture come from enteric methane, the MLA sought to get on the front foot with this and has been very active in investing in research to look at ways that we can reduce our methane emissions and the role of vegetation and other aspects to in sequestering carbon to reduce emissions. So in that process, in the most recent report of the release of the Beef Sustainability Framework, The MLA has come out and said the beef industry since 2005 has reduced emissions by 64%. Now, I think that might amaze many sectors, maybe even within Australia but overseas, but I suppose it's an example of how of an industry trying to front end this and not wait for any regulation to come, Blake. I see that as being really significant. Okay, we might pick up on that a bit further because I'm sure our New Zealand listeners would be interested on what carbon neutral by 2030 looks like. So this is the Meat and Livestock Australia initiative. So keen to get probably a bit more understanding around what does that pathway look like and equally what how is this impacting farmers? What will be required of them to get to that 2030 carbon neutral target, Crawford? So uh, Meat and Livestock Australia or MLA, uh, way back in 2017, unveiled a major project for 
around what they call CN30 or carbon neutral by 2030 for the red meat industry. So, and that encompassed from emissions being measured inside the farm gate through to the processing sector before it got to retail, essentially. So, it is a voluntary initiative, Blake. So, the Peak Research and Development Corporation, the uh, MLA, saw this as a measure to sort of front end what they saw happening in global. Like we export, as I was saying before, a major proportion of our commodities goes overseas and they could see emissions being a significant issue potentially around market access and other areas. And so got into really I think what was considered at the time to be a significant project globally amongst the major sort of ag production sectors. So they're investing something around $150 million through what is through grower levy contributions and what's coming from government and the private sphere in trying to find a pathway for the industry to get to carbon neutrality by 2030. In the most recent report, they're suggesting that the industry has made a 64% reduction in, in emissions from 2005 levels. And largely that has come through uh, livestock productivity gains. Uh, we've seen that lowering the emissions intensity. There's um, reports suggesting that the beef industry alone has improved its intensity uh, 20% from 1985 through to 2015 through better productivity. We have also seen a reduction in the sheep flock in that time, which has been in response to changes, particularly in the mixed farming zone in southern Australia and the switch from sheep to cropping you know, based around profitability and issues that were with the sheep industry back in the 90s through excess wool production. But also we've seen changes in our clearing laws nationally and from what we've seen way back in the in the 90s to the early 2000s, we're seeing far more sequestration, regeneration in our natural vegetation on farm. And they've been all contributors to the industry achieving that 64% reduction. I think now what's coming though, Blake, is through the investment, is really the need for this investment to give on-farm practice change around methane reduction. And we're seeing plenty of work in methane inhibitors at the moment, particularly in the confined feeding sector, the feedlot sector, but also a lot of research about how we might get that into extensive pastoralism. So if we can solve for that, well, then the red meat industry might well achieve its carbon neutrality by 2030. Now, if it doesn't, it's voluntary, right? This is not a a compliance-led process through the MLA, but even if we don't achieve it, I think it's just still laying the foundations for the red meat industry in how it might treat its emissions going forward, right? And I think that is quite significant. You know, the challenge, I think, is still getting the right research back inside the farm gate and for that research and the adoption of that research not to impact on productivity and, and profitability. You know, they're the keys. Yeah, and looking and some really impressive numbers there, right? About um, the reductions in, in emissions and, and the efficiency improvements, and, and presumably they are at a supply chain or, or sector level. Is there a focus on getting down to an individual farm level around individual farmers understanding their their footprint and ultimately moving into path to reducing their own individual footprints, and, and which tears up obviously to a supply chain, but less than just a holistic supply chain view on things. Yeah, I think the answer is yes and no, right? And 
we've probably only got 5% of farms measured in Australia today. That's across all sectors. Some sectors are ahead and others are behind, right? So we see individual companies have made commitments to carbon neutrality. In the beef sector, JBS is one that has a carbon neutrality footprint by 2040. And I do note from a uh, conversation just the other day, it would appear the openness of that discussion with their supply chain is happening today. Now, they made that commitment some time ago by JBS, but it still wasn't really following through discussions inside the farm gate. So the number and the quality of those discussions is definitely growing and improving. I suspect from where the low, if we're thinking about emissions measurement today, and we're talking about the beef industry, where we'll be in two to three years' time from this point today is I think we'll see a significant proportion of the beef industry actually measured inside the farm gate. And that will be as a direct response to companies down the supply chain actually wanting to know what emissions are inside the farm gate. If we look out to that 2030 target and in terms of the impacts on farmers, is is farmer perception over in Australia largely BAU with some changes and improvements, efficiency gains, and we'll just get better at what we're doing as we've done previously? There might be some new technology that we bring into the tent, but we're just going to keep on this path? Or is there a concern or awareness that there may be some significant implications in terms of how either they operate as an individual farm into the future or, or even whole classes of land that there may need to be some kind of land use change? Again, what, what end of the spectrum or, or scale is, is the thinking in Australia around that, Crawford? I think if, if we continue the productivity focus, Blake, so there's, there's no doubt productivity will deliver a large amount of gains going forward, right, and particularly in emissions intensity. So if we continue that productivity focus, you know, the recent uh, report through the CSIRO would say that farmers are actually achieving around a 1% productivity gain each year and when adjusted for climate variability is around 0.6 or 1%. That means to say that the the industry is actually going in the right direction with this. So clearly productivity is going to be the number one to achieve um, these 2030 targets. And when you talk to farmers about this and how it relates to emissions intensity or how it relates to emissions measurement and overall emissions inside the farm gate, they get it, right? They get the connection quite easily. But Longer term, we will still need to see the adoption of some sort of technology inside the farm gate because our productivity will only get us so far. We'll need to see some broader adoption inside the farm gate, whether it's, as saying before, through methane inhibitors. It could be through breeding, and there's a lot of work being undertaken in uh, at the moment around looking at various genetics and the capability to lower emissions just through um, selective breeding and putting that into breeding indexes in addition to other feed additives and obviously looking over the ditch to see what's been done in New Zealand at the moment, particularly around vaccines and other things. Those things are underway. We have potentially in the next few months, uh, we may see a new cooperative research centre, that is what we call a CRC, which is a federal government initiative and to be established for zero net emissions in Australian agriculture. Those research centres is a collaboration of private and government money. If that comes together, that could be another significant sort of momentum push for lowering emissions, particularly in the red meat sector. 
and that's over and above or working in tandem with um, MLA's CN30, right? So um, watch that space. We'll probably know from June, well, even the end of this month, even in July, as to whether that initiative gets off the ground. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. So what I hear is productivity, efficiency gains, research and development, ultimately leading to technology. Is there much talk around a need to reduce stock numbers, looking at alternative land use? Where does that come into the discussion or does it come into the discussion? No, there's no discussion around reducing stock numbers, although you might say that's a fear of sun farmers when they think about uh, reducing emissions going forward. No, but, you know, once you talk about productivity gains and how that actually, we talk about emissions measurement, they get it, right? There is some discussion going on uh, locally in certain parts where we're seeing wholesale properties. Look, I know here in the southwest of Western Australia, we're seeing some major ag properties being converted back to 100% vegetation to drive carbon credits um, by some of the major oil majors, right? And there is some local concern about that, but more nationally, uh, no. And I think that's very separate to maybe what you're seeing maybe in parts of New Zealand. That could be an issue going forward. We have the Emissions Reductions Fund and the establishment of the Australian carbon market, which sometimes drives incentives which uh, maybe competes against traditional agriculture, if you put it that way. Largely that is around maybe planting of trees that we might see something, an an issue emerge emerge there in the future, potentially. But at this point in time, there's really no significant issues that we face. And, you know, as I understand, that's probably different to your part of the world or maybe other parts of the world. How are Australia looking to leverage this globally? So you've mentioned a few times you're an exporting food production nation like New Zealand. How do you think Australia is going to position itself on that global market in respect of sustainability? Well, I reckon we've got some work to do. Now, the sustainability frameworks that each sector's put in place is a start, Blake, and that's helping. But uh, my personal view is that we've got a bit more work to do. It could be one of the level advantages maybe the New Zealand agricultural sector has because it's had to do a fair bit of work in the compliance place, which means then that they might have a position or that they can give to the global market about what their position is, right? So that's probably contrary to us. We don't get access to global markets if we don't do things right, though. And largely, and I think it's a measure of the success of agricultural production here, is that we get it right. We can't expect for things to remain the same, right? And I think that's going to be the challenges with various trade agreements that get negotiated from time to time and the impacts that would have inside the farm gate about meeting standards on greenhouse gas emissions or deforestation or other things. But largely we're okay at the moment, Blake, but we cannot accept that that's always going to be the case. And you see the example through the carbon border adjustment mechanism out of the EU. If that's an example of where this might go uh, with other trading blocks, you know, that could be the case. We've had to ensure that we've got the right sustainability accreditation to get canola exports into the EU. And you so, you know, we've seen that happening, right? So I don't think we can just say that it's all going to be easy. It's not going to be the case. And I, my view is that we're trying to be as proactive as possible to make sure that we, we put a good image for Australian agriculture going forward overseas. So it sounds like very conscious of that continued 
access to market, whether that's that market is through the food companies that are setting their own standards, whether that's through nations that are setting it through trade agreements or border adjustment taxes, like you said, but perhaps not looking to push it to the point that you're necessarily seen as leading in the the sustainability food production space or or leveraging that as a national brand. I'm I'm sure there'll be brands within Australia that that will leverage their own products or or what what they're doing, but maybe not as that Australia Inc. story, Um, more around just continuing to ensure you're doing the right thing, uh, which will give you options to ensure you can continue to support supply whoever you need to continue to supply. Absolutely, Blake. There is just one, obviously, the more recent development of the Australian Agricultural Sustainability Framework as an overarching framework that industry and others can latch onto to set up their own as a pointer to how we should go with this, right? So be interesting to see how that gets accepted and sort of permeates into individual farm businesses going forward in the future, right, as being some sort of framework that we can all follow. It's not a standard, right, but it's it's a framework and how that is accepted globally. So we're certainly not sitting back and saying we've got no, there's no action here, right? There actually is action here, but we're not doing it within a, let's say, a compliance framework at this stage. It's all pretty much voluntary and that'll be one of our challenges going forward and If it was to relate back to greenhouse gas emissions, Blake, and we talked earlier about 2030 targets and things, if we're not meeting our government emissions targets going into the future, I suppose one of the ways that the federal government might deal with that is to start regulating. Now, the industry is doing sort of ag, is coming from the position, no, we don't want that, but let's see what we can do on a voluntary basis hence the action that's been taken by the MLA. That was going to be my final question, Crawford. leads quite nicely into it. As I suppose a, a summary, ultimately what are the major risks and opportunities that sustainability represents to the Australian agri-industry? And I think you've highlighted one there is, is if you don't move at the pace required, you do have introduction of a, of a regulatory obligation or, or requirements. You know, what, what else do you see as those key risks or opportunities? So from a market access, that is one of our key risks. As I was saying before, a large percentage of of what we produce goes into um, export markets and we don't remain attuned to what export markets, uh, what their desires are, whether it's uh, regulation at a a country level or within a, a, what are the attributes within supply chains, right? So that remains a significant area to watch and both an opportunity and a risk, right? Risk, we lose access to high-paying markets and we go down the curve. So that's a key risk for us. One of our opportunities, though, when you look at the agriculture in the Australian context, we cover a large landmass, which is generally not populated. We're generally in an environment where we don't have the same risks around, I think, water pollution or uh, nitrogen-based issues that you look you see in other parts of the world because of the our extensive farming nature. We've always had a strong culture around sustainability inside the farm gate as it relates to looking after your assets, your natural assets. So there are, I think, there are many components to Australian agriculture that that would say that we have an opportunity here to put that into the international marketplace like we have done previously, uh, but we just can't take it for granted anymore, right? And I think that's the thing. 
as other supply chains outside of the country, countries start making regulations, we've got to be really tuned to that. And I think our sustainability frameworks help us in that. I think one of the risks is is that we're slow inside the farm gate to pick up. So our farmers aren't getting the proper signals through their supply chains. That could be one of the risks. But, you know, from what I can see at the moment, when I look at the quality discussions that we have and we want to have with our clients, for even those who, begrudgingly, um, you know, I think they get it, right? We just can't always accept that we're getting access to markets on the way that we've always done things right. That's going to be different going forward. Yeah, look, and, and, and I think, you know, what I've picked up through this interview is, is to me that seems one of the fundamental differences between Australia and, and New Zealand, you know. It is very clear that the industry in Australia is incredibly cognitive of the changes and the requirements that are needed and are taking actions. Uh, I suppose the nature of it, as you've said a couple of times, you've got the voluntary versus compliance. So how that flows down to the farmer level, I think is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out on, on both sides of the, the ditch. And, and I suppose you look at the advantages from my perception of what Australia are doing is that voluntary supply chain approach is it provides a lot more flexibility around how you get to that, that end target. It, it really puts it in the hands of the, the farmers, gives them the, the responsibility. And, and as you've already said, I mean, 64% gain since 2005 is an impressive. So it may be a case of just continuing that as opposed to New Zealand, which is a lot more prescriptive and, and it may have consequences or, or negative impacts as it forces farmers to get or achieve certain targets. But I suppose that the risk is the voluntary side of it is there isn't that driver forcing the farmers within the farm gate to make those differences that will ultimately provide the supply chain that the outcomes that they need. And if it doesn't deliver that, what does that look like? Where in New Zealand, I believe our farmers are incredibly engaged in this discussion around it at the farm level. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily agree with the approach or how we're going about it, but all incredibly engaged and very aware of perhaps the different levers they have or don't have within their farming system to to get to where they need to get to or not need to get to. So I think it's going to be really interesting over the coming years to see how that does play out. And, and then the other, I suppose, bit is, is on the international market side of it, where it sounds like Australia are very conscious that they need to keep pace with what's required, but as an industry level, perhaps not looking to position themselves as the leader in that space, where I get the feeling in New Zealand, we almost have to buy, we don't have much of a choice because we do have that compliance pressure on us. It's how do you leverage and recover some of those costs or impacts on the global market? Don't get me wrong there, Blake. I think at an industry level, <laughs> you know, we'll be, we'll be in there competing as hard as anybody else. There'll be no doubt about that. I think one of the interesting things to watch is just exactly what you said about New Zealand in particular is because of your compliance market, regulatory sort of driven market, will that allow you to operate at a higher level, I reckon, into international markets are and above what we see here because you've got that weight of compliance behind you to a higher level. I think that's going to be a fascinating one to watch. Yeah, I agree, Crawford. Does this translate into more efficient better farming systems delivering better outcomes or is the risk it becomes a tick box exercise where farmers are farming to what they have to do to meet targets and, and maybe doesn't throw to their efficiencies and, and that's the, the crux of probably where we are in New Zealand. So look, I've, I've really enjoyed our, our discussion 
Crawford, I'm sure New Zealand listeners will be really fascinated to hear what Australia are doing and, and, and their approach and, again, to see how this plays out over the, the coming years and, and what the impact that, I suppose, ultimately means from a competitiveness point of view for New Zealand farmers, but, but just more generally, you know, how this will impact farmers in other parts of the world that are going through similar challenges. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.